Well, good morning, St. Paul's. Uh, welcome to our fourth live stream service of the coronavirus outbreak. Um, I know this is a strange time that we're living in, and it can be hard to keep track of what day it is, but for anyone who has forgotten, uh, this Sunday is Palm Sunday. And so in honor of that, we're going to begin with a passage from Psalm 118, which is where uh, some of the uh, quotes that are used in the Palm Sunday story come from. Some of what the crowd said to Jesus uh, comes from Psalm 118. So here are these words, uh, the Psalm 118, 25 through 29. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession, up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we are gathered together to celebrate you. Lord, we want to celebrate you uh, the way the crowd celebrated you on Palm Sunday. And we want to celebrate you for all the right reasons. Um, we know, as we're going to be learning, the crowds didn't celebrate for all of the right reasons. Um, but we want to celebrate you for all the right reasons, Lord. Recognizing who you truly are and all your goodness and all your glory. Lord, we celebrate on Palm Sunday, on this day, that you rode into Jerusalem, even though you were putting yourself uh, on the path to crucifixion. Lord, we thank you for going to Jerusalem anyway. We thank you for displaying your incredible love for us and for your creation in doing that. Lord, we pray that you would meet with us now, that as we are gathered virtually, um, you would just... Uh, Surround us with your presence, that you would unite us through your Holy Spirit. And uh, we just open ourselves up, Lord, to hear from you this morning. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so in a moment, we're going to look at the story of Palm Sunday from Scripture. Uh, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to make your way to Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Uh, Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. So as I said in that opening prayer, when we remember Palm Sunday, we're remembering that Jesus chose to enter into Jerusalem even though he knew that the religious leaders there wanted to kill him. So Palm Sunday is a time where we recognize and celebrate the courage of Jesus. Because rather than running from trouble, right, he marched right into it. He went into the hornet's nest. He went into the belly of the beast. And he did it in a time where he was guaranteed to attract attention and upset powerful people even more than usual. Now, why do I say that? Well, Jesus went to Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday during the feast of the Passover. And during that time, Jews came from all over the area. They went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And there were so many Jews who would come that the population of Jerusalem would increase from 50,000 to 100,000. So it would double dramatically. And 
you would have thousands and thousands of people camping out on the hillsides in Jerusalem. And many of these people were hopeful that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Uh, the Jewish people had been waiting for hundreds of years for uh, this prophesied king who would come and set things right with the world and uh, fix everything that was wrong with Israel. And many of these people who had this hope, right, they had witnessed the miraculous things that Jesus had done, or they had spoken to people who had witnessed the miraculous things that Jesus had done. And they were thinking, this really could be the guy. This guy sounds like he's, he comes with this unique authority from God. Um, he's fulfilling the messianic prophecies. This really could be him. In fact, just a few days before Palm Sunday, Jesus raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And he had been dead for four days. So when you do stuff like that, word gets around. And word had gotten around, and the people were excited that Jesus might be the Messiah. So they were excited about the possibility that Jesus was the Messiah. And they were also probably especially excitable at this time, because Passover was the celebration of a time when God uh, conquered Israel's enemies and set Israel free. And so during the Passover, a lot of people would be hoping that God would reenact that same story in their relationship with, with Rome. Um, Rome had political dominance over Israel. Uh, Israel was not an independent, sovereign nation. Israel had to pay taxes to Rome. And for the Israelites, that was not the way they thought things should be. That was upsetting to them. That was humiliating to them. And they wanted a Messiah to come who would overthrow Rome, lead a violent uprising, be a military conqueror. And during the Passover, they were especially focused on that whole idea, right? Because the story of the Passover, of, of, of God setting Israel free from slavery in Egypt and doing that in a dramatic way, humbling the Pharaoh, that story just awakened all those feelings. You know, they wanted a new Moses, and they wanted somebody who was going to humiliate the, the, the Caesar in a similar way to the way that Pharaoh was humiliated uh, during the Exodus. And so, because of all this, if Jesus wanted to keep a low profile and, you know, not stir up controversy, this was just the absolute worst time for him to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus knew, if I go to Jerusalem now, the crowd is going to go crazy, and in turn, the religious and political leaders are going to be upset, they're going to be concerned, they're going to see me as a threat, and then they're going to try to eliminate the threat. And yet, fully aware of all this, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. So, let's read the story of when he did that. Again, Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. 
Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, let's stop here for a moment. Why is it so important that Jesus rides in on a donkey? Right? Jesus goes through all this trouble to make sure that he is riding in on a donkey. Why does he do that? Why does that matter? Well, it matters for at least two reasons. Uh, the first is clearly told to us in the passage, right? Which is that Jesus' riding in on a donkey is a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Uh, Matthew quotes from the prophet Zechariah, who talked about Israel's king arriving on a donkey. And the second reason uh, this is significant is a less obvious reason, but it is hinted at in the text. Uh, notice that the prophet associates riding in on a donkey with gentleness. Right? Uh, he says, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. And this is because in those days, if you were a military conqueror type of leader, that kind of king, uh, when you rode into a city, you didn't ride in on a donkey. You would ride in on a horse, you know, a, a big, strong, uh, scary war horse. Uh, you didn't ride in on a donkey. Uh, but Jesus, even though uh, he is fulfilling a prophecy that indicates he is the king of Israel, he is choosing to ride in on a symbol of peace, on a donkey, uh, rather than a symbol of war and conquest. So that's the other reason. This is significant in why Jesus puts a high priority on doing things this way. Um, I've joked before that what the Israelites really wanted was a king who would come and make Israel great again. right? Someone who's going to be a conquering hero, who's going to make Israel dominant in the world. But Jesus' chosen mode of transport here is a sign that even though he is the long-awaited Messiah, he is not about to make Israel great again in the way that everybody hoped. Uh, he hasn't come to lead a physical army. That is what the people wanted. Uh, that's what they expected. But Jesus had a different plan. And at this point, the people still don't realize that. They're excited by Jesus' arrival. They're so excited that they're probably not really... Uh, paying attention to the significance of the donkey. I imagine that they're trying to not think about it because uh, they don't like what that's implying. But they receive Jesus like he's going to be the kind of military hero, military conqueror uh, that they're hoping for. And uh, so let's read about that. Uh, continuing in verse 6. Uh, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So, just as expected, Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the people go crazy, right? Uh, John's Gospel actually says that the people wave palm branches, which, of course, is why we call this Palm Sunday. 
And that's significant because palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Uh, for a Jew to wave, wave a palm branch was a little bit like if an American waves an American flag. And so the fact that they're waving these palm branches reveals what they thought about who Jesus was, right? They thought of him as a political leader. That's what they were hoping for. Um, there, we also see evidence that they saw him as a political leader, conqueror type of person because of what they say, right? They say, Hosanna. Now, what does Hosanna mean? Hosanna means save us, save us. Now, why are they saying save us? Are they saying save us from our sins, save us spiritually? No, what they're saying is save us politically, save us from Rome, save us from these taxes that we don't want to pay, save us from the humiliation of not being the independent, glorious, sovereign nation that Israel is supposed to be. So when they say, save us, Hosanna, they're basically saying, Jesus, please make Israel great again, make us dominant, lead us in conquering our enemies, be our new Moses, and let's see Caesar get humbled just like Pharaoh did. But of course, if that's what they're hoping for, that's not what they're going to get, right? And the fact that Jesus has chosen to ride in on a donkey is hinting at that, that he is not the military conqueror that they want. And so, because of all this, when I've been reflecting on Palm Sunday over the last few days, the word that keeps coming to my mind is a word that I think many of us can identify with right now, which is disappointment. Disappointment. You know, in this passage, we see the people's joy because they think that their expectations are going to be fulfilled by Jesus. But we also know that those particular expectations are not going to be fulfilled. And actually, throughout the, the course of this next week of Jesus' life, Jesus is going to say and do a lot of things that are disappointing from Israel's perspective. Uh, this week, I, I looked at all four of the Gospel accounts, which all four of them include this story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. And then I looked at what happens between that triumphal entry and Jesus' crucifixion. So basically, all the events of Holy Week. And it is a litany of disappointments from an Israelite perspective. Uh, for example, you know, rather than declaring that he is going to make Israel great, Jesus announces that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and the temple is going to be destroyed, and that this is going to happen before the present generation passes away. That is very disappointing, right? That is not at all what the people want to hear. Uh, Jesus tells parables indicating that the religious leaders are going to be judged for the misuse of their spiritual authority. Again, very disappointing, not what the religious leaders want to hear. Uh, Jesus also uh, tells people when, when he is asked, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? He says, yeah, pay your taxes to Caesar. Again, that's not what people wanted to hear. That was disappointing. People wanted to hear, let's push back against Rome. You know, let's overthrow it. In fact, everything that Jesus did was so disappointing that by the time that he was arrested, the people were completely unwilling to defend him. You know, the people who were celebrating him about a week earlier have now given up on Jesus. Um, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea at the time. And he actually gave the people a choice. 
He said, I'll either give Jesus back to you all, or uh, I'll release a prisoner, a notorious prisoner by the name of Barabbas. And what did the crowd say? They said, crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas. Now, why did they do that? Well, there's a hint in the scriptures that tells us that Barabbas was a political insurrectionist who murdered Roman officials. So why did they choose Barabbas? Because Barabbas reflected more the kind of zeal, the political zeal, that they wanted in a Messiah. Even if they didn't think that Barabbas was actually their Messiah, they still liked his approach more. Right? But Jesus, this person telling us to uh, you know, turn the other cheek when we get hit by our enemies and to love our enemies, and who's saying that he's not going to lead an uprising against Rome, and is saying, pay your taxes. That's not what the people wanted. All of that was extremely disappointing for them. So right now, I'm sure that some of us can identify with the feeling of the failure of expectations and the disappointment that comes from that. You know, we all had plans and expectations for what these months would look like in the upcoming months, uh, and the virus has messed those plans up, right? Uh, students are disappointed because uh, their school years have been cut short. Well, not their school years, right? They still have to do their work, <laughs> but uh, their experience of community by being on campus, uh, that has been cut short. That's disappointing, not what they expected. Uh, high school seniors are, are having to deal with the reality that they probably won't experience prom and graduation uh, the way that uh, students ordinarily do. You know, college students are disappointed about having to leave their on-campus communities. And uh, I know that can be very hard because college is a, is a unique time in your life and you only get about eight semesters and they go by fast. Um, Families are disappointed because they're having to cancel their plans for trips and for summer vacations and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, I'd say that given the number of people who are applying for unemployment right now, there are a lot of people who are very disappointed about uh, their job status, disappointed about their change in financial status. People are disappointed because there's no sports on TV. Uh, people are disappointed because they can't find what they need grocery store. And I'll be transparent with you guys, uh, this virus has disappointed me in some significant ways too. Uh, in the weeks leading up to this virus, I had several conversations with people where I said something like, you know, I feel more alive and excited about ministry than I have in years. Um, you know, I was really enjoying working our way through Revelation and preaching on that. I was having fun doing that. Um, I, I was excited that our congregation was growing. We had uh, three weeks in a row where we had about 100 people. And um, that was very exciting because I've been here for four years and we've, you know, we've broken that 100 barrier a few times, but never three weeks in a row like that. So, you know, that was exciting and we had more, more students coming here than we ever have before. Um, we had a couple of new groups that started. I was really enjoying the Theology Think Tank, and um, Justin Mercier and I just, uh, started a, a small group at High Chase, and that was going really well. And, you know, I just felt alive and excited, and, and then the virus came, right? 
and it changed everything. Um, that's been disappointing. Personally disappointing. And of course, I also want to acknowledge that there are people who are being disappointed by this virus in much more traumatic ways than anything that I, I just listed. I mean, there are people out there who have lost loved ones on account of this virus. And the word disappointment doesn't even seem big enough, you know, for that level of disappointment. So this virus has caused minor disappointments and it, it's caused major disappointments and everything in between. And some of us might feel upset with God because of those disappointments. God, how could you let my retirement money just disappear? like that. You know, God, how could you let me lose my job? Uh, God, how could you let me get sick? And if any of us are disappointed and upset with God right now, I think there's a lesson from Palm Sunday that we need to hear. And uh, I'm going to grab my, my low-tech slide right now um, so we can uh, all... Uh, see exactly what this main point is, which is that Jesus doesn't always save us from what we want to be saved from, but he does save us from what we need to be saved from. That is the lesson that I see in Palm Sunday that I think is very relevant for us right now. Jesus doesn't always save us from what we want to be saved from, but he does save us from what we need to be saved from. When the Israelites shouted, Hosanna, save us, you know, they thought that what they really needed was to be saved from Rome, saved from political oppression. But Jesus knew that they really had a much bigger problem than that, a much bigger problem than Rome. He knew that what Israel really needed was not to become some world superpower that could beat everybody up. You know, what the Israelites really needed was peace with God. What the Israelites really needed was forgiveness for their sins. What the Israelites really needed was the hope of eternal life. And what the Israelites really needed to be saved from is really what we all really need to be saved from. Uh, the way I like to put it is there's three things we all need to be saved from, regardless of who you are. And those three things are the guilt of sin, uh, the influence of the devil, and the tragedy of death. The guilt of sin, the influence of the devil, and the tragedy of death. Those are our three root problems. Those are the problems that underlie all our other problems, the foundational problems of our existence. And the fact is that Jesus came to deliver us from all three of those problems. You know, through Jesus' death and resurrection, our guilt of sin is removed. He takes the consequences of sin upon himself, and he frees us from that. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, the devil's claim on us is destroyed. Um, and the devil and his demons can still... Um, influence us in some ways. They can still kind of harass us, right? But ultimately, when we have our faith in Jesus, they have no power over us. Uh, Jesus has broken that curse. And also, through Jesus' death and resurrection, death itself is destroyed, and we have the promise of eternal life, life beyond the grave, to hope in. 
So what we really need to be saved from, Jesus has saved us from. But sometimes, like the crowds on Palm Sunday, we make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is going to save us from things that he doesn't promise us uh, promise to save us from. <clears throat> and Jesus never promised that he would lead a political uprising against Rome. And we have to recognize, similarly, you know, he doesn't necessarily promise that we're not going to lose our jobs or that our retirement funds aren't going to take a hit. Um, he doesn't promise that our senior years aren't going to end prematurely um, in, in high school or college, right? Um, he doesn't promise that all of my plans for ministry aren't going to get turned upside down and I'm going to have to adapt and change all that. Uh, he never promises to save us from those kinds of disappointments. In fact, what he did promise his disciples before he went away to be crucified is, in this world you will have trouble. That's a promise from Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. In other words, in this world, you're going to have disappointments, especially if you have high expectations for how things are always going to go in a certain way. Like, look, the reality is you're going to be disappointed sometimes. But then Jesus added, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. In other words, don't despair when your expectations are upset. Don't despair when all your plans get turned upside down because of something like coronavirus. Because I have overcome the world. In other words, the things you truly need to be saved from, I have saved you from. I have overcome those things. So don't despair. And I realize, I know, often we want to hear something different than that. You know, we want to hear, in this world, you won't have trouble. In this world, it's going to be smooth sailing. That's what we want to hear. But again, Jesus doesn't always save us from what we want to be saved from. He saves us from what we need to be saved from. There's a verse that I think is relevant here that has been encouraging for me in my own walk of faith. Uh, it comes from 1 Peter or sorry, 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. And it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God has given us everything we need for what? Life and godliness. Not for political dominance over Rome, not for a constantly growing bank account, uh, not even for perfect health, but for life and godliness. And what that means is that God has given us what we need to live lives that please him. Uh, God has given us what we need uh, to live lives that glorify him. You know, even if uh, our earthly lives are short, uh, even if we have to spend a bunch of time in quarantine, God has given us what we need to live a life that glorifies him. He has given us what we need uh, to reflect goodness and mercy and grace and love in the world. That's what it's all about. And he has given us the resources that we need through his Holy Spirit to be able to do that. 
And that is the case whether there's a coronavirus outbreak or not. So, this morning, if you are disappointed with the way that things have gone over the last three and a half weeks, uh, if you're frustrated, if you're feeling let down, and, you know, if, like the Palm Sunday crowds, you're wishing that God governed things a little bit differently than he does, remember, he has saved us from what we truly need to be saved from. He has saved us from what we truly need to be saved from. He has given us everything that we need to shine like stars in a dark world. So let's not despair. Let's not get cynical. Let's trust him. Our king comes to us gentle and riding on a donkey. He comes not to steal, kill, or destroy, but to rescue. And our gentle, humble king has overcome the world. Amen? Amen.